0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, let's take our Bibles tonight and we'll open them to Leviticus chapter 16, Leviticus chapter 16, and if you would look at the end of the chapter, I'd like to read the last six verses, and we'll begin reading at verse number 29, Leviticus chapter 16 and verse number 29. And this shall be a statute forever unto you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, ye shall afflict your souls, and do no work at all whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourneth among you. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you that ye may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. And it shall be a Sabbath of rest unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls by a statute forever. And the priest whom he shall anoint and whom he shall consecrate to minister in the priest's office in his father's stead shall make the atonement. And shall put on the linen clothes, even the holy garments. And he shall make an atonement for the holy sanctuary. And he shall make an atonement for the tabernacle of the congregation and for the altar. And he shall make an atonement for the priest and for all the people of the congregation. And this shall be an everlasting statute unto you, to make an atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded Moses. These verses describe the commandment that God gave for Israel to observe one day each year to make sacrifices for atonement. And it was a Sabbath day, not a regular Sabbath, but a special Sabbath. Uh, It was in the seventh month on the tenth day of the month. That would be in our month of September. And this day was called the Sabbath of Sabbaths. And they were to cease from all their works, ...as they must on all Sabbath days, and they were required, as it says here, to afflict themselves. This means that they were not to eat or have any activities for enjoyment. So it was a very solemn day, and they were to present themselves in an attitude of grief and repentance from their sins... ...and then to participate in an offering that was made for them. It was the Day of Atonement, that's a day of being reconciled to God... To the Jews, as I've mentioned before, that this was simply known as the day. If you ever refer to the day, there's no explanation needed. Everybody understood what day you were talking about because this was the most important day. It is the day of atonement. Now, you'll notice in verse number 33 that... Atonement was needed for the tabernacle, both the inner and the outer portions of it. Atonement was made for the altar and for the priest. And then finally, there is an atonement that is made for all of the people. Verse 34 says, And this shall be an everlasting statute unto you, to make an atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded Moses. Alfred Edersheim and His book about the temple said it may sound strange and yet it is true that the clearest testimony to the weakness and unprofitableness of the commandment is that given by the commandment itself. The Levitical arrangements for the removal of sin bear on their forefront as it were the inscription the law made nothing perfect having neither a perfect mediatorship in the priesthood nor a perfect atonement in the sacrifices nor yet a perfect forgiveness as the result of both. So Edersheim pointed out how the law itself is not good enough. And when we began the study of the day, I pointed this out, that this is the whole point of the types and figures because they are just shadows By themselves, they they aren't any good for anything, but they all point to the sacrifice of Christ, who was the perfect sacrifice and the one who could do what those imperfect animal sacrifices could not do, what all the figures of the law could not do. And Christ, when he made his sacrifice, that sacrifice was fully sufficient for atonement and forgiveness of sins. Now, in our last message, that's where we ended. We ended on this note and the fourth part of our outline that the Day of Atonement was a day of service. And the truth that we learned about the Day of Service is that Christ did the work of atonement alone. There wasn't any assistance that was needed. There were no rituals that could supplement it. There are no actions on our part that can make atonement effectual. But again, Christ's work is complete by itself And it does for us all that is needed to be done. And so acts of faith, those things that many people are insistent upon that make the atonement effectual, are really nothing more than obedience after the fact, after atonement has already been made and accepted by God. But there are so many people who believe that the atonement sits inactive and it has much potential to do things for everybody, but there's something that has to be done to activate it. And so it's as if atonement needs a catalyst to begin a spiritual reaction. And that catalyst, they say, is repentance and faith, or perhaps it's baptism, or it may be a list of sacraments that need to be done. And they say, if these things are added to the atonement, then the atonement will work. And we readily dismiss Roman Catholic ideas that sacraments are needed, and we would have no trouble dismissing the idea that baptism is needed, as the Church of Christ teaches. But we don't as easily dismiss what the modern Baptists teach, and that is that repentance and faith are actuators of the atonement. Now, I think that we've clearly articulated this in the last message, that repentance and faith from a dead heart is utterly impossible. And if it were possible, it wouldn't be sanctified, and it wouldn't be repentance and faith accepted by God. And so it's necessary for God to supply the ability for repentance and faith. They are gifts of God that are received from the holy, sanctified heart of the Savior himself, given to us by the Spirit. Every gift that God gives is good. And that is essentially the cardinal difference between the doctrines of grace and the daisy of the Arminians. Now, we accept that all the work that Christ did in salvation from our election before the foundation of the world to our glorification, everything in between, is done by Christ and by Christ alone. And so he requires nothing to make redemption work. So I'm saying then that our salvation was, was purchased, that it was completely paid for, and it is effected by Christ alone, and that it's done for Christ's people alone. And since it's done for his people, they do nothing to activate it, and so they are sure to receive all the benefits of it. And their reception of the gift is because God regenerates and because God enables us to receive it. So it's wrong to say that the atonement is made for everyone, and all that they have to do is just activate the atonement by faith. Now, if you would, I'd like for us to uh, turn to Isaiah chapter 63, Isaiah is a a very important book to read for understanding the exclusivity and the sufficiency of Christ's work. Uh, In fact, Jesus often quoted from Isaiah. And so let's look at this uh, prophecy of the the, uh, Messiah in Isaiah 63, beginning in verse number 1. Isaiah 63, verse number 1. There's a question that's asked here in the beginning. Isaiah 63, verse number 1. Who is this that cometh from Edom... With dyed garments from Bozrah. Then the answer comes back. This that is glorious in his apparel. Traveling in the greatness of his strength. Or rather, I apologize. That's a part of that question. Then uh, the, it comes back here in the last part of that. I that speak in righteousness mighty to save. That is the answer to this question. Wherefore art thou red. Next question. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel. And thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat. And then the answer comes back, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury... It upheld me. Now do you see Christ saying that I do the work alone? He said, I have trodden the winepress alone. It's Christ that puts down all enemies. It's Christ who stops Satan's attacks. It's Christ who defeats all principalities and powers. And it is Christ that opens the eyes of people that have been blinded by Satan. And he overcomes our stubborn will and our resistance to the gospel. And that's done by the Spirit of Christ. And then if you look there at verse number 5, there was no one else could do this. There was none to help. And so Christ, he says, his own arm brought salvation. So I want to be very crystal clear about this, that Christ said no one helps, nothing we do can help. And if it was true that we could help, then we could just as easily say that we save ourselves with Christ's help as to say that Christ saves us. With our help. So, in Christ alone, as we sang this morning, in Christ alone, my hope is found. So, let's not stand for any unbiblical salvation that depends on anything we do. Now, most won't give up that repentance and faith complete the atonement, that is, makes the atonement work. But the atonement is done, and it has been done since Christ satisfied God on the cross. Now let me help you then understand what I'm saying, that repentance and faith, both of these were purchased in the atonement. We don't, we don't bring them to the table to enable Christ to save us. And so rather than activating the atonement, it's better to say that the effect of the atonement is applied to us through repentance and faith. They're the instruments by which God makes it effectual to us. Now, the picture of Christ's sufficient salvation is shown in tabernacle worship. We see that the work of the priest could never save them. Nothing that he did was permanent. And thus, we have the comment in verse 34 that the Day of Atonement is to be a, an everlasting statute in Israel. That is, it's to stay this way. It's to continue this way until Christ came to make the day obsolete. Only the object of the day could end the rituals that were made on that day. So we've seen then that the Day of Atonement was a day of humility, that it was a day of sacrifices, it was a day of imputation, and a day of service. Now, fifthly, we want to consider that it was a day of acceptance. A day of acceptance. There are times when I think that I don't really need to repeat these concepts because i teach them so often they're always fresh in my mind of course because i deal with these nearly every day so i can go home and when uh, bob releases one of the sermons randy gets it posted on the internet if i decide to listen to one of those sermons i i listen to one of those and i say good point that's right that's exactly right i understand exactly what you're talking about Whereas some of you may not find it so easy at times to understand, uh, I've been told that uh, things that I, well, I know that things I say are not remembered. I find that out from conversations with people. They're not remembered. Some things are not comprehended. And I've I've been told many times that I cover a lot of ground in a sermon. I give you um, a lot of things to think about. And that, of course, is good reason to take notes and decide to ask questions later But then through much repetition of the themes, these things start to become clear. I know a preacher who said that he was going to stop preaching three-point sermons and to make things easier for people that he would just stick to one point and he would drive that one point home. And so uh, this is a true story now. The next sermons that he preached, the next several sermons that he preached were one-point sermons. Well, I know the fellow well, and I know that he didn't have very much depth in his three-point sermons. So when he decided to preach only one point, you can imagine after he kept repeating one point, that that's, that's kind of irritating and it gets kind of boring. I mean, how many ways can you say water is well, wet and milk is white? You, you know, you can't say that too many different ways. So that kind of gets dull after about two minutes. So I, I prefer that we would have sermons that are somewhat challenging And then if you don't get it, then you just ask me later, and that gives me another sermon to clarify, and then another one, and then another one, until you've got it all. And, of course, we've also had the testimony of people have said that after hearing something over and over and over again, finally the light goes on, and now everything starts to fit together, and we understand what it means. Well, I say all of that because here we come to another of these repetitions, That there was a need for the acceptance of the rituals of sacrifice that were done on the Day of Atonement. And when we talk about it being a day of acceptance, it's not the day of the people's acceptance. This is God's acceptance. Everything is not fine with God. God's very particular. There are only some things that are fine with God. And those are the things that we do by following his instructions but the day you hear that everything is fine with god that god is a god of love god is a god of tolerance and acceptance god loves people enough that he will forgive all sins that are committed against them if we care to call them sins at all and so the worst sinner and the worst crimes can be forgiven because god is love that sentence is true that is absolutely true but we need to know why is that true there's criteria for forgiveness. Because God is also just. And justice never takes a back seat to love. Without perfect justice. God couldn't love. Because the allowance of injustice. Is incompatible with love. Unchecked. In- injustice would be. Would be fatal to our happiness. To our sanctification. And for our contentment. When we get to heaven. So justice demands that sin must be punished. God can't forgive indiscriminately without satisfaction, and you couldn't live in a world where God tolerates sin with an excuse of love, and you certainly wouldn't want to live in heaven for all of eternity that way. Now, you've heard this phrase used often, I think, that uh, hell on earth, that I'm going through hell on earth. Well, there isn't any such thing, but as close as you could get to that would be unchecked tolerance. And there really isn't any such thing because those who preach tolerance are intolerant of anyone who doesn't share their opinions. And to test that theory, it's not a theory, but to test that out, try reading Leviticus 2013 at the Gay Pride Parade and see how many of them will agree with you. Recently I was listening to some discussion about the gender debate. Some of you may be aware that Canada recently passed a law protecting transgenders, and part of that law made it criminal not to refer to transgendered people by their preferred pronouns. And if you didn't, that was to be considered hate speech. You could be fired for that. You might even, I don't know, you might even be put in jail uh, for, for not referring to people by their preferred pronouns. So this pronoun debate, this has become really big stuff. And so now there's this new lexicon of pronouns to accommodate the spectrum of the L, B, G, T, Q, S, R, Y, Z, Q, S, T, whatever it all is. Uh, But it seemed much, much simpler to me to use only one pronoun to cover it all. And to be real easy, we would just use the pronoun it. What is it? Um, I saw a character on TV just recently. I said to my wife, would you please come and look at this? What is it? Uh, So that kind of covers it all to me. But, but interestingly, in, these, in this litany of letters of the LB, what is it, LBGTQ, they've added a plus sign to the Q. Now, you know what that means? Well, it means that there are some that are so far out that they identify as non-human. Now, this isn't a joke. This is not a joke. And I tend to believe that may be more accurate than we think. But, but can you believe that they also have pronouns that are proposed to cover these, this group of people? This, this is a sample sentence using new pronouns that I found on the internet. Uh, this sentence says, Z reminded Zerself to pick up Zer umbrella before going outside. I'm not sure that refers, what that refers to. I don't know, it might refer to a person who thinks they're a zebra. I don't know, self identifies as zebra. But all of this is a very strange thing, and, uh, we, we, we love Canadians, don't we, Matt? We, we love Canadians, and some kids in the room are half Canadian. Uh, so, but we, we ought not to just blame the Canadians for this because, it, uh, because it's being so far out, because it turns out that the opponents of this law who wanted to protect free speech in Canada say their representatives were influenced by Americans. And so what the LBGTQ has been unable to pass in our country yet. It it is coming. Uh, They passed it in Canada under the influence of all of our crazy activists. So you'll be happy to know that Canadians are guinea pigs. And uh, that's not really a slam. That's just a euphemism, euphemism for what Americans are doing to the Canadians. See, the Canadians have long resisted being identified as American North rather than North Americans. But it seems that Canada just can't shake us. So what would be most beneficial to Canadians is to build a border wall between us that they would gladly pay for if they had any sense. But anyway, you have all this outlandish stuff and this is the kind of thing that you get with unbridled tolerance. You see, I told you these sermons have a lot of concepts for you to think about. But let's return here now to the idea of acceptance in the tabernacle, it wasn't a proving ground to see if Israel would accept God. God does not care two hoots whether we accept him because he's not eligible to be judged by us. You're not going to make God's day if you accept him. Salvation often preached that way, though. God is lonely. God needs you. God is miserable without you. God needs you to complete him. And that's just all nonsense. Here's a quote from Ligonier. Is it true, as some say, that God is happy when we are happy? Of course. God, however, is also happy when we're sad. He's happy when we're frightened, when we're disappointed, when we're hungry, and when our foot falls asleep. God is always happy, ultimately speaking, The God we serve is the ever-blessed God. God is God, and as such is not dependent upon any or all of us for his joy. He has no needs that we can meet. He is altogether satisfied by himself and in himself. Now you think for a minute why that's true. God is sovereign. Everything that happens, happens because God has willed it to be so. And if he didn't choose it to happen, then it won't happen. So you think, did God choose to make himself unhappy by doing something that he doesn't like? Well, of course, that would be absurd. So there isn't anything that, that we would do that would make God feel better. So this means God's not shedding tears for you to believe in him. God cries because you won't believe in him, and you hear that kind of thing. He sheds no tears for people that are in hell, and that's because God is satisfied with justice. God loves justice, and God is perfectly happy with that justice. But for most, when you talk like this, it's a very radical thing because the scriptures often speak of God's pleasure. It does say that God has pleasure and displeasure in certain things. God is wrathful when he is displeased. But the point that's missed in all of that is that God is at the center of it, not us. In other words, God's pleasure or displeasure is controlled by his own parameters. And so he decrees one event will end in blessedness, and he decrees that another event will, will end in wrath. And that doesn't mean that God is discontent with either of those outcomes. And so this concern that God created man to fill a void in his person is absurd. He created man to have a creature on which he could display his attribute of love. And his love is made external in saving man and God alone sets the boundaries of it. And when I say boundaries, I don't mean that God has limitations of ability. No, his, his love is bounded only by the limits of his personality, which means he can't love outside of his goodness. He doesn't love outside of his justice or his holiness. God never loves out of, outside of any of his attributes. So my point in this discussion is to say that God is never open for evaluation. We don't evaluate God. And so I think that it's inaccurate, and this is my repetition, I think that it's inaccurate for us to use the term accepting Christ. Although hopefully we do understand it uh, when, we, when people say it, that it's not an evaluation of God, and that carries no weight with God. I just tend to think that words are very important. We ought to use the right words when we speak and use biblical words when we speak. So the acceptance of the Day of Atonement is God's acceptance of the offering. Is it what he requires for atonement? Now bear in mind that animal sacrifices were not actual atonement. They were atonement in type because the scripture says the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. So the law is a ritual that testifies to itself that it's never enough. So in a picture, in a type, God must accept the offering. Now we we're honing in on only one activity of this day for our emphasis because we saw in the text as we were reading it that atonement is made for everything in the tabernacle, it's made for the tabernacle, the altar and all the environs of the tabernacle, every single article as well as the people. So we just boil all that down and concentrate on the high priest sprinkling the blood of atonement on the mercy seat which is made for the people. Now if you look at verse 15 in Leviticus 16, Then shall he, this is the priest, Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring his blood within the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat before the mercy seat. Now there he's, that's speaking of the sin offering made for the people. That's the national atonement for Israel, God's chosen people. Now this is then the primary focus of the day. Now can we zero in on this point again? That if it was intended to be a day signifying a general atonement, that is an unlimited atonement, one unqualified for all, then we would need to see another offering here. We would need to see another type, another animal that has a different designation. So we would need to see a a sacrifice that's made for Gentiles, a general sacrifice that's made for all others. And I can't find anything in the entire Old Testament history of Israel an offering that is commanded for Gentiles. But we did notice in verse number 29 that there are those who might have been strangers and, and uh, they're, they're with the children of Israel and they are also commanded not to work on the day of atonement. We know there's a mixed multitude that left Israel or Egypt uh, when, they, uh, when Israel left Egypt and all of these people are on the way to Canaan. There are some that join themselves to Israel while they're on the way. But all of these are bound to live under the commandments that were given through Moses. And so the ceremonies that are given would comprehend them as proselytes. No one who lived among the Jews could ignore the rituals they made and no worship to any God but God was tolerated. So there isn't an entertainment of an offering here to forgive the sins of Canaanites in uh, whose land that they would soon possess. There's not... Uh, an offering that's made for Moabites and Edomites whose lands they had to traverse in order to get to Canaan. No, these, none of these are considered to be a part of God's people. And so when we get into the New Testament and salvation is given to the Gentiles, that salvation comes because they're a part of a covenant. And so you might ask, well, what is that covenant? Where, where do we find this covenant? Well, it's the one that was made between the Father and the Son before the foundation of the world. This is the covenant that Jesus referred to in his high priestly prayer of John 17. So there in John 17, verses 5 and 6, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word." Now, having passed this point, which undergirds the doctrine of limited atonement, we see that the priest followed the instructions for how this sacrifice is to be made. The sins of the people are confessed on the head of a goat, and that goat is sent away into the wilderness. That's the goat that's called the scapegoat. But there was another goat that had been selected, and that goat goat was killed. Its blood was collected, then brought into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant. So the priest brought in that blood to be accepted by God. And atonement was complete only when God accepted it. And all that feeds into our earlier discussion that in a type, in a symbol, atonement is complete when God accepts the blood. There aren't any other steps that need to be taken. So the activity that goes on outside of the tabernacle, all the things that the people were doing there, doesn't change anything that God does on the inside when the priest applied that blood. Now that brings us to the truth that's taught by this activity. And the truth is that we are accepted based on the application of Christ's blood. We are accepted based on the application of Christ's blood. The blood of the goat sacrificed outside, requiring actually two goats to complete the picture, that is the blood of atonement. And that represents Christ taking his own blood into the heavenly sanctuary to make atonement for our sins. That blood has to be accepted. And when it is accepted, atonement is fully made. It's complete. Atonement is the satisfaction of God. That's the propitiation of God's wrath against sin. In Hebrews 9.24, for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, that is, not into the physical tabernacle or temple, which are figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. In verse 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Now, there's a lot that goes into this, a lot of thoughts that we need to consider, and we don't have time to go into all of those this evening. But instead, I want to bring into, uh, just as we're finishing up here, um, as a point of discussion, this very crucial point about the blood of Christ. This concerns the doctrine of divine blood. Was the blood that Christ shed the blood of God, or was it the blood of man? Now, that's a very important question because there are some who contend that the blood of the cross was divine and that the blood had supernatural qualities. And so there are inventive stories about people who who touched the blood and suddenly they were healed, and other stories about how the blood ran down the cross and then when it uh, touched the ground that flowers blossomed and grass grew or whatever. Then there are others who say that it was physical blood, and this blood was collected by who? We don't know. And this blood was taken into the sanctuary in heaven. Now, how strenuously we would argue that point might not be that important, but to say that the blood of Christ was not ordinary human blood is a very serious error. That if his blood was not human, as yours and mine is human, then it means it has to be superhuman or it must be divine. Those might be the same thing, I don't know. But the Bible doesn't say that the blood of Christ is superhuman blood, and it never says that it is God's physical, some kind of physical blood, spiritual blood, or anything like that. Some will say that it's blood that's untainted by sin. And it's true that Christ was sinless, but sin is not a condition of the physical flesh. That's the air of Gnosticism, of Docetism that taught that uh, there couldn't be a bodily resurrection of Christ because he couldn't have been real human flesh because flesh is sinful. But the Bible doesn't teach that the physical body is sinful. Now, it certainly has been affected by sin, but in itself, it's not sinful. Otherwise, the Gnostics would be right that Christ couldn't have had a human body. So they say Christ can't be human because the body is sinful. But rather, the truth is that sin is a condition of our nature, that it, uh, sin is a disposition of the mind, and our flesh is affected by sin only in sin's devastating effect of death. Now, the effect then of sin is not to make this, this skin that's on my hands sinful, or make the blood that flows in my veins sinful, though the human body as a body of flesh is not Sinful. In fact, when Christ arose, he arose in a human body of flesh. But it was flesh that had been transformed to be immortal flesh. Now that brings us to the conclusion that the blood, that is the bringing in of the blood, is a symbol of death. The scripture says that the life is in the blood, and so it means that when the life is taken from the animal, that the animal's life, or when the blood is taken from the animal, that the animal's life has expired So then the blood of Christ becomes a euphemism for his death. So we are saved by the death of Christ, symbolized that life is taken because blood is shed. That has nothing to do with divine blood for healing. It's the death of the sacrifice for us that gives us life. And so when we sing songs like, what can wash away... My, all my sins, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Well, we mean the blood as a symbol of Christ's death. Because I don't think there's anybody in here who took a bath in blood when you got saved. Nobody was washed literally in blood. And so it's a euphemism for Christ's death. And so likewise, when we look in the scriptures to find a definition of the gospel, that according to Paul... The gospel is that Christ died according to the scriptures and that he arose according to the scriptures. And in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul talks about this, he doesn't mention blood at all. He didn't need to because it's the death of Christ that saves, pictured and confirmed by the shedding of blood. Then Paul said that he arose. And when he arose, in what body was he raised? It was a body of flesh. Jesus said to his disciples in a post-resurrection appearance, Luke twenty-four thirty-nine, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. Then we have this song in heaven in Revelation 5, verse 9. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Well, what are we to gather from this? Blood here, Paul talks about the body of Christ. So what are we, the death of Christ, so what are we to gather from this? Well, we're together that death and blood are intertwined and that death and blood stand for the same. That when we say we are redeemed by Christ's blood, that is the same as saying we are redeemed by Christ's death. So we are saved by Christ's death and his resurrection to life. Now, that might seem strange to you that I would even have to mention this. But there are many, many people who believe that we're talking about divine blood and not human blood in the body of Jesus Christ. Now, let me just leave you with a couple of verses to think about. You can take some time to read them in their full context and you can see if they uh, confirm the concepts that we've spoken this afternoon in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, Peter wrote, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now you write that reference down. Read the verses that are rounded and see if you don't come to the same conclusions that we've talked about this evening. Now next week we're going to return and speak more about this acceptable sacrifice that Christ made to God on the cross of Calvary. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for uh, this lesson that we've had about the blood of Christ, the acceptable offering that was made for us, and we thank you, Lord, that Christ was fully able to make a sacrifice that requires nothing from us because there is nothing that we can give. And the sacrifice that he made was fully acceptable to you because it was a sinless sacrifice and it was exactly what you required, a human life taken in order to redeem us from our sins. Lord, we thank you for the truth that we've learned in the word tonight. Help us, Lord, to take this to our hearts and understand and to keep this up in our hearts as a, as a reminder of what you did for us in that perfect sacrifice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707 584 7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church. 6298 Country Club Drive, Roanoke Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.